Unless Council's ask is passed, passports will be passed. This week, Council will be debating a municipal vaccine passport. If you define debating as not implementing, that is. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 166. This episode is a week after the last week's episode. Unfortunately, since then, I think approximately six or seven months have passed. Mac, do you feel the weariness that I am feeling? Oh, aren't we supposed to be excited? The pandemic's over. Everything's back to normal. It's open. Didn't you hear? Oh, cool. Do you want to come over and record this in person then? Oh, yeah, we should totally do that. So we will get into all of that. I'm sure you did notice, dear listener, at some point that Jason Kenney declared the pandemic over. We'll break down exactly the city's role in that, but we can't do that before we get into the rapid fire segment. A soaring number of 311 complaints related to snow clearing have required extreme responses from City of Edmonton bylaw enforcement. There have already been more requests placed this year than in all of last year's winter, which has required bylaw officers to invest in earplugs and blindfolds in order to effectively and efficiently ignore the complaints. Former Oilers executive Jeff Harrop has been appointed president of FC Edmonton. The former senior vice president of marketing with the Oilers explained, quote, Soccer is a game a lot like hockey, but instead of a puck, you have a ball. The players kick the ball with their feet, and those feet do not have skates on them, so there's been a definite learning curve there for sure. One defining feature of the game, though, is that no one ever scores any points. So in that way, playing soccer is a lot like playing for the Oilers. A report from Angus Reid this week has found that three quarters of Albertans believe the federal government is ignoring issues important to them. Many Albertans have indicated their frustration that Justin Trudeau's federal liberal government, which they elected, continues to refuse to engage in good faith on their demands to hang Justin Trudeau for treason. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. This episode is brought to you by the well-endowed podcast from the Edmonton Community Foundation. Here's a clip. Hello, I'm Elizabeth Bonkink. I'm Andrew Paul. And we're the hosts of the Well-Endowed Podcast. The Well-Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation, or ECF as we call it. ECF provides grants to charities through the endowment funds we create and manage with our donors. Hence the title of our show, The Well-Endowed Podcast. Every month, we bring you a collection of stories and interviews with fascinating guests who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. Through these stories, we look at the space where endowments intersect with your communities. So if you're interested in the people and issues impacting your community, check out thewellendowedpodcast.com. Well, Mac, I think we can't belabor the point too much. We have to start at the big item this week, and that is pandemics over, as we said in the start of the episode. However, big bad evil mayor Sohi seems to want the pandemic to continue and force restrictions. Well, and maybe the rest of council too. So yes, as you all know, the province has announced their three-step approach to rolling back all of the restrictions, lifting all of the public health measures. Started right away, midnight on the day that it was announced, the restrictions exemption program ended. First place in Canada to do that. I guess that's Premier Kenny following through on a promise that he made that that would be the first thing to go. And that, of course, led to lots of discussion at city council about what to do about this. And in fact, across the province, because 
Nobody was given any notice about this. Businesses, all the municipal governments, everybody that was doing something with this restrictions exemption program had no notice that it was about to be canceled. Council this week discussed what they might do about it here in Edmonton. And Mayor So, he said that he was obviously very disappointed about this decision and wished that it had been done in a more gradual way. They got an update at council and basically said, we would like to investigate our options here to see what we could do locally. Kind of like how the city had a mask bylaw before there was a provincial mask bylaw. Although that's probably where the similarities end, I think, Troy. I think it's worth remembering, though, that that mask bylaw that the city implemented before the province was implemented because the province and indeed Premier Jason Kenney said at that point that these decisions should be made by local authorities. It wasn't the province's place to make sweeping restrictions. It was up to local authorities to make the best decisions. Uh, So a bit of a change in tune there. I think before we engage with this premise any further, I think it's worth mentioning that both you and I know that there's zero probability this ever goes forward, right? I think I think that's right. I just don't see this happening. When administration gave a council some advice this week, they talked a lot about how difficult it would be to actually implement and enforce a municipal program. I don't know how they would do that exactly. And even if they found a way to do it in bylaw form, like how would you actually make sure that anybody is following it? I think enforcement would be a huge issue and administration said that as well. And then we've seen Lots of other places around the province already uh, talk about a similar idea and shoot it down right away. I mean, it was not a popular idea among Calgary City Council. They voted against it. As you can imagine, many of the rural communities are celebrating the end of the rep and are already planning to go forward with you know open events and facilities and things like that. So Edmonton really would be off on its own if it tried to do something here. And of course you can't make restrictions in a vacuum. If the region is not on board, and in fact, the region is not on board just today, as we're recording this on Thursday, Strathcona County has officially said, we are lockstep with the province. Masks are gone on March 1st, uh, and all other restrictions are currently lifted. So, you know, we have our neighbors right on our doorsteps that aren't going to be doing this same exploration into these measures. It just can't work, not the least of which because you have people crossing regional boundaries uh, with different vaccination status and different mask rules, but also because of this enforcement piece, individual businesses, we now have a provincial government saying, anti-vaxxer, you are right. We have regional municipalities saying, anti-vaxxer, you are right. Those people are going to walk into businesses and they're going to say, you know what? I think I'm right. And that's going to be a very, very uncomfortable situation for the frontline business workers that are going to be tasked with enforcing this because we know, like we mentioned, enforcing this from a policing perspective, very, very challenging. Absolutely. I think the only way this could potentially go anywhere, Troy, is if Mayor Sohi and I guess the rest of council had the stomach to call Premier Kenny's bluff on his threat to amend the MGA. So in this whole discussion, the premier said, in contrast with his previous guidance, as you pointed out, that 
the provinces are in the best position to make these kinds of decisions and that municipal governments don't have the data and they're not equipped to make health decisions like this. And he even went so far as to suggest that he might make amendments to the MGA to restrict the ability of municipalities to pass their own rules about this. And we've seen this week the province sending letters to school boards and you know really trying to make sure that everybody follows through and removes the restrictions exemption program and follows through on lifting the measures as the province has said. When Mayor Sohi was asked about this at first, he had a very lovely choice of words. And he said, I really don't think that Premier Kenny is going to follow through on this because I know how much he respects the jurisdictional autonomy of the different orders of government, <laughs> which I just loved, you know, turning Kenny's words against him. If council really wanted to stick it to the province, they could go forward and try to do something here, even if they know that it's not going to be enforced, just as a way to call his bluff on that. But personally, I don't see that happening. I think we're both on the same page, though, that while there will not be a vaccine passport for Edmonton, I, I don't think there's any way that that passes when the motion comes back. I believe it will be Friday at 1.30, so perhaps just after you're listening to this, if you're one of the early birds slurping up that worm. There are a couple things that may happen, though. Masks are definitely going to be in place until March 1st. But you'll recall when council recently amended the masking bylaw, it doesn't move in lockstep with the province. To remove masks in the city of Edmonton, it requires a motion of city council. So masks are here to stay in Edmonton until city council so chooses to remove them. And I suspect that won't be on March 1st. Yeah, I think you're right. Masks are going to be here for a while. And just a bit of clarification on that, because I saw some conflicting reporting about this. The most recent update to our temporary mandatory face coverings bylaw, which was in December last year, council took away any sort of automatic repeal date or trigger for the bylaw. And instead, it just must be reviewed within 30 days of either the province canceling their mandate. So within 30 days of March 1st, or within 30 days of having fewer than 100 per 100,000 cases for 28 consecutive days. So looking at our numbers, it's going to be within 30 days of March 1st. Yeah. So essentially, it's what you said. Council needs to uh, to make a motion for this bylaw to go away. The other thing that could happen, I think, in addition to masks is just, you know, potentially more stringent screening requirements at city facilities. So temperature checks and questionnaires and, you know, all those kinds of things at rec centers and stuff could be I don't know, maybe with buses. I don't know. They could find some ways to amp up the screening. So it's not an ex a restriction thing. It's just trying to make sure that as much as possible, they're not letting sick people into these places where they could spread COVID. One other component to this is while the first part of the motion that will be coming back this Friday is about bringing forward a draft bylaw to potentially implement a vaccine passport in the city of Edmonton, the second part of the motion is exceedingly interesting, and that directs the mayor to ask the premier of the province to provide to city council the data by which this decision was made, the justification and the recommendations from the CMOH. Now, we know they're not going to provide that because we have the benefit of having ears and listened to them for the past two years. <laughs> but there's absolutely value in making that motion and bringing this forward, where in Calgary, you know, they voted against having administration bring this bylaw forward. I think there's value in having the debate and having the debate in public, even if ultimately we choose not to do it. It is acknowledging that these people exist, their concerns are real, and that the province is unwilling to share data on why they are not 
honoring these people's requests. So I think it's good to have the public debate. I think it's good to have the public debate in a way that frames the province as data hoarding ideologues. That's all good. But of course, it ends with no vaccine mandate for the city of Edmonton. Yeah, I, I agree that it's good to have the conversation. I do think it's strategically probably not the best way to go about it. You know, on the one hand, the first part of the motion, yes, we're going to do a municipal program. And on the second part, we need all the data so we can make informed decisions. Pretty easy to point at that and say, well, then why are you going ahead with the program, right? Alas, it won't go ahead. So not probably an issue. You know, we're definitely going to get some people saying this isn't council's place. This isn't council's area of expertise. And normally, in most weeks, I would defend them. But as we're wont to do on Speaking Municipally, we watch council debates. And one thing that caught my eye this week is perhaps evidence that I'm not sure that this body is quite ready to make such big life and death decisions. And that came in a fairly innocuous debate about a budget amendment, which was effectively to reduce the expenditures budget of a city department by $10 million. And this prompted a point of order and a debate about what exactly is a budget. You know, this is really interesting, this item finally coming back. This came up during the budget. Councillor Rice really wanted to find some way to say to administration, hey, you need to find some efficiencies here and to the public, see, I did my part to represent you. And so this amendment was put forward and now has finally come back. Uh, when she got the chance to speak about it, she used her five minutes talking about how much money the city of Edmonton spends and how how uh, we're not thinking about the future generations, that they're going to be indebted, the things you would expect uh, to hear from somebody who wants to cut the budget and find some efficiencies. Uh, but then she said something really interesting that you pointed out, which is that she could not see how reducing expenditures impacts the budget. And then also this motion is not to reduce budget, Ms. Mayor. I would like to clarify that. This motion is to expenditure budget, is not budget. So I would like to clarify that. Right as she said that, you could hear in the background of the meeting sort of like, shuffling and like murmuring and you could hear in the background mayor sohi just like and i and can I call upon the order madam clerk Councillor rice made a statement that says that her motion is not to reduce budget and expenditures and when the intent is actually very clear in the motion that it is to reduce expenditures. So I just want to make sure that it is clear to us what we are voting on. And the city clerk is like, yep, 100% reducing the budget. The best part was that the city manager literally reread the motion. <laughs> <laughs> the, the motion says reduce by 10, you know, it's like very clear. And it could have ended there. Uh, and it could have been a vote and the vote could have failed as it was always going to fail. But then Councillor Rice really doubled down. But I don't want the misunderstanding, mis in, in take my information, my statement. I'm talking about the budget is not expenditure. So my my intention is to reduce expenditure is not reduce budget. That's two different sense. It is it is the same. <laughs> it, is, it is reduced. Budget means we already passed a budget. We will be reducing that budget by $10 million. That's how I read it. And that's how city manager reads it. And unfortunately, the doubling down made this a bit less of a joke to me. It would have been funny 
Point of order, what is a budget? Good laugh, everyone moves on. But the doubling down of a counselor who's been there for nearly half a year and is about to enter a four-year budget cycle gives me significant pause because you and I both remember Counselor Banga, who I think we'll both agree did not give significant value over his six or so years. Agreed. What we have coming forward is very clearly the same class of counselor. I have not been super impressed with Jennifer Rice, but, you know, new counselor, there's a learning curve. Six months is past the time where I'm willing to say, eh, counselor school, new counselor. If you don't know what a budget is by this point in time, if you don't know that the city has to balance its expenditures and its revenues in order to run a balanced budget. If you don't know all of that by this time, I can't help you and I don't believe you are helping us. We've only got a body of 13. So one thirteenth not bringing their A game to the table, that's a pretty significant hit. Agreed with everything you said. I recall that instance with Councillor Banga when he sort of infamously asked, what is a tax levy? (laughs) Uh, But at least he phrased it as a question. Jennifer Rice, as you pointed out, doubled down on her ignorance about this. And maybe it was an honest mistake, but it's not an encouraging look for a counselor going into the four-year budget, as you say. Of course, going into the four-year budget, we're going to be talking about the police. The police is the largest budget item. It's the most politically hot potato budget item that's currently affecting the city. And it's going to be a tentpole debate in the next four-year budget cycle. And I think, judging by the motion that came this week from Councillor Rutherford, council is angling to have the governing body of the Edmonton Police, the Edmonton Police Commission, be a more effective partner in bringing that debate forward. Because this week, Councillor Rutherford, I think it's fair to say, attempt to increase council's influence on the police commission. That's right. Her motion is that administration come back in March, on March 14th, with amendments to the commission bylaw for the purpose of increasing the number of City of Edmonton appointments by one for a maximum of four. And she said in her comments about this that they've learned, councillors learned through the process of uh, finding a new councillor. They currently have one vacancy that they're looking to fill, and they've been doing interviews She said they learned through that process how important these appointments are. Mac, did you just misspeak there? Because aren't there only two appointments currently? Uh, And two plus one is not four unless the truckers have really changed something. (laughs) No, I did not misspeak. I'm questioning the validity of the motion, and I suspect it'll be corrected or changed by the time this comes back to council in, in March, and we'll follow up and ask the city about it. But if you do read the commission bylaw, it says that the commission shall consist of not less than five members and not more than 11, two of whom may be councillors or employees of the city. So if they increase it by one, I'm pretty sure you get three, Troy, not four. Unless there's some hidden magical version of the bylaw somewhere, but we're pretty confident we've got the latest version. I think the motion is slightly incorrect. The other interesting thing about this is that council appoints everybody on the commission, all 11 members or 12 if this goes ahead, or maybe it's just 11 still, but there's an extra one that they can appoint who was either a councillor or who works for the city. But regardless, all of them are appointed by city council. So In a way, it's providing more influence to council, but not really, because they already get to decide who is on the commission. I I suppose you're right. But also, I would say, you know, there's a very different context between a 
involved community member being appointed to the Edmonton Police Commission by council and a councillor themselves who has the full force of budget deliberation actually sitting on the police commission. Another councillor in that chair definitely, I think, increases the power and influence of council as a whole. Well, I would love to see them appoint actually a city of Edmonton bureaucrat, which is an option that they have. And maybe we can do somebody from the finance department. Since it was pretty clear during the budget discussions that they don't have good clarity on how much money this police spend on certain things. So maybe getting some finance people on there could be a helpful thing. We've heard that we need the police commission to cooperate in order to move forward with a police audit. Why not just appoint the auditor to the police commission? (laughs) Although I guess the auditor isn't actually an employee of the city, is it? No, I think they are technically an employee of council. There's only two of them, the city manager and the city auditor. So I don't know if they could probably appoint the auditor. Why not? It's a good point. Uh, You know, I guess maybe this is the intent of Councillor Rutherford's motion, right, is to make it so that the number of people that are likely to want to vote in favor of doing an audit or any of those kinds of things is, is higher. I don't know if you got the same vibes I got from this, but when I read this motion, it very much reminded me of the problems down in the states with the Supreme Court and the push to add more seats to the Supreme Court in order to increase the democratic influence on the Supreme Court. This sounded a lot like that to me, a way of getting around a stagnant police commission by just adding more friends to it. Yeah, which can work as long as the majority are people who you agree with. And then when the next election comes around, it can really work against you, right? One thing that I've noticed just historically is that The single most reliable way to get a counselor to agree with the police and to vote with the police on motions is to put that counselor on the police commission. Good point. The police commission is one accountability measure for the police. Another one is straight up suing them, I guess. We followed up this week, uh, we being Taproot and you guys, I did none of the work, but I get to claim credit as a co-host of this podcast. There was a follow-up done by Taproot on the police property damage, which we've been following, and exactly what recourse people have when the police damage their property. What recourse do they have, Mac? I don't know the answer. (laughs) Well, we were curious because there was two instances in the news recently that you may recall. So the first was Candace Jane Dorsey and Timothy Anderson, who had the police caused $15,000 of damage to their backyard when they drove that mini tank thing that got stuck on a tree stump, remember? And then there was also the more recent one at the end of the year. It happened earlier in 2021, but we learned about it just recently that Sin Wine and Tapas, a restaurant here on 104th Street where I am, had $3,000 in damages caused by police last year when they responded to something. And so we thought, well, this is interesting. How many of these are there? How many of these get investigated? What happens? What is the recourse that people have? So we learned that last year in 2021, the city of Edmonton received about 1,200 injury and damage claims. And of those, 116, so a little less than 10%, were related to police activity. The majority of those were about motor vehicle crashes. 55 of them were related to property damage and minor injuries. So I don't know if that's a huge number or a small number or how that compares to other jurisdictions or other years, but that's what we learned 
about 2021. So when the police do cause damage, the first thing that happens evidently is they leave a business card behind. <laughs> That's what happened to Sin. The police left a business card. But they also must fill out uh, a form that goes to the city of Edmonton's uh, claims department. Uh, and so they have a record of it. And you as the property owner who has incurred the damage are encouraged to seek remediation through your own insurance, although there is the option to go and ask the city about this. And so that's what has happened in, in some cases. It can take a long time, 120 to 180 days, depending on the complexity of the claim. And at the end of it, the city can basically just decide that the city and the police are not negligible, which is what happened in the case of uh, sin. And so then they can ask the city to review that decision, but it seems unlikely to go anywhere. I mean, I've certainly been involved in this claims process with the city of Edmonton, not for police damage, but for the damage you'd expect, pothole damage to the car, can confirm that it's a very long process. And the city basically says, nah, we're not going to pay you any money. Sue us. And pe people don't tend to do sue the city very often. <laughs> Of those 55 claims that uh, were related to property damage for police last year, they paid out just $31,000, so not a huge amount of money. And there were 19 requests to uh, review decisions, three of which were related to the police service. So it's not a good chance that you're going to you know, get the, the money back. The other problem with the police, we've learned from a, a lawyer, Avnish Nanda, is that if you're going to sue the police, you must do it in the Court of Queen's Bench, which is the course, the superior court in the province, you can't go to small claims or anything like that. So it's going to cost you thousands of dollars to even start that lawsuit, which means if they've caused $3,000 worth of damage or, you know, a smaller amount of damage, it's really not worth it. And so, of course, nobody does that. Smack, it doesn't sound like you discovered any good news in this further investigation. I think the main thing we learned is that, um, there is actually a process. There is a form that you can go and fill out. The city does have a review process for these kinds of claims. They do warn you about the wait time and how long it might take. It's not likely that it's going to turn into anything for you, but at least there's a process. What we don't know uh, and have been unable to get from the city so far is the exact dollar amount uh, that all of the police damage or other damages has has resulted in, right? And that would be interesting to know. If the majority of these incidences caused by police are really small, then you know it makes it really difficult to to seek any sort of remediation aside from filing a claim and having it rejected. Well, I read in the story that the budget for this entire claims process is $10 million a year, but that also includes all the claims for potholes and other transportation related damages, right? Yeah, this is the budget for the city's claims department. So it's anything they might have to pay out. So potholes are obviously the biggest chunk of any kind of claims they're going to get. But it's also part of the, the staff and the budget that goes there. So we don't know any breakdown of that $10 million. We just know that's what's allocated to that part of the city, the insurance and claims management section, as well as you know, what they pay out for, for any sorts of claims. So probably safe to assume 9.5 million in salaries, <laughs> and we pay them highly to have them deny claims. I mean, if you're the city, that would be the prudent, efficient thing to do, right? The city is not the only one that wants to uh, double down on efficiency. Uh, sorry for ascribing a motive there, City of Edmonton employees. Though, if you're a City of Edmonton employee and you're still listening to this podcast, masochism, maybe? I want to talk about the efficiency of council, uh, because... This week, one of my favorite motions came through, which is esoteric backroom council baseball. Council in the council services standing committee made a motion this week that 
rather than the current system of where you get five minutes to speak and then you can have infinite more rounds of questioning where you get five more minutes, they would change that to five minutes on the first round and only three minutes for each subsequent round. Mac, is this an indication that council is already sick of hearing each other talk? <laughs> I think it could be. I did love this motion as well. It's not often a problem, right? Most times, most things that they discuss don't go multiple rounds. There are certain issues that do, and those issues can certainly drag on. When you get to second or third round and you're into your 10 to 15th minute of speaking, you tend not to be asking questions so much as making statements. And so, yes, I think this is geared toward curbing that and trying to tighten up the meetings a little bit. Some of those dis debates can go quite long. That causes problems not just for we have to go have dinner and lunch and those kinds of things, but it means that other items don't get addressed that need to get addressed. You know, time specific is probably the worst labeled thing of all that city council does because nothing actually happens at that time. So I think it's just, as you say, trying to, uh, to tighten that up. It could be that they're sick of hearing each other talk, but I think they're trying to create some rules for themselves, some guideposts for themselves to... Uh, Stop some of the grandstanding, maybe. I have one more thing to say about this, Troy. It's a pile. <laughs> I don't know exactly how this is going to work. Like, they're not amending any bylaws or anything here. They're just saying, yeah, let's pilot this. This was Councillor Knack's motion to who brought this forward. So I guess they're going to try it. Yeah, it's true city fashion that it's a pilot, not a permanent this change. actually makes me quite mad. There's no reason for this to be called a pilot. You can just change the rules and then change them back if they don't work <laughs> or change them to something else. Not everything has to be a pilot. And for it to be a pilot, there needs to be a period, you know? We are piloting this for one year and we'll revert it. There's no reversion included in this. It is just changing the rules. There's also no measure of how do we know if the pilot's successful or not? <laughs> <laughs> Am I annoyed with my council colleagues? After a year, yeah, you're going to be annoyed with them. That's how government works. There's no success criteria here. It's worth noting that this uh, passed non-unanimously. It was only 10-2. So perhaps those two give us an indication of who wants a second round. Do you want to guess who voted against this? <sighs> okay, my heart says uh, it's got to be the talkers. So. Aaron Paquette and Aaron Rutherford. Oh, that's interesting. So Aaron Paquette, definitely because he doesn't want to lose his extra two minutes. <laughs> did Aaron Rutherford, did you listen? Did she give any reasoning for her vote against? I did not listen, unfortunately. I'm not sure. Uh, We'd have to go back and check the video on that. Well, you saved a lot of time, but less time after this pilot passed. Yes. <laughs> that sound means that we do not have time for another round of questioning. Uh, we've got to end this podcast now, but we can't let you go without reading an ad. This episode was brought to you by Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta. It offers internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing for your local charities. Now just think, if you subscribe to Park Power, you get to laugh at all those other people posting on Twitter with their high bill this month as it does every year in alberta you get to choose who you buy your internet electricity and natural gas from park power has low overhead which in turn allows them to offer low competitive rates you can reach out for no obligations comparison by emailing estimates at parkpower.ca and if you decide to switch it's easy it's just a quick change to your billing and you can feel good knowing you are helping to give back to your communities with your utility bill you can learn more at parkpower.ca and that's all for this week mac 
we got a big week coming up next week. I know there's going to be trains. There's going to be bikes. There's going to be probably something to do with COVID. It's all so exciting. It's going to be no shortage of things to talk about. Whether they're happy decisions remains to be seen. And we will see it all next week. Until then, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally.